Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. We are still live at Microsoft Ignite, and I am talking to, I forgot your name. <laughs> oh, Aaron Gustafson. Aaron Gustafson. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume, you spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects, and that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them, and if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. Uh, Aaron, do you want to say hi and introduce yourself real quick? Sure. Um, hi, I'm Aaron Gustafson, and gosh, I've been working on the web for 20 plus years. Uh, I'm editor-in-chief at A List Apart, which one of, is one of our big industry publications. Uh, I work on the Edge team as an evangelist for web standards and for accessibility. Um, and gosh, I've probably done just about every job that you can do on the web at this point, and uh, I still love it. So. Awesome. Now, a list apart, you said that's one of our publications. So does Microsoft own No, that? no, not Microsoft's, our communities. Our okay. Community. Yeah, it's uh, it's been around pretty much since the I beginning. I was going to say, they've yeah. been around for a long time. Yep. Yeah, I joined as, uh, well, I've been on been on staff before as a technical editor, uh, left for a while, and then came back as uh, editor-in-chief. And I think right. I've been editor-in-chief for about a year and a half or so, maybe a little bit longer, um, which is, is fun. It's a nice, nice side project to, to do. Interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought. I, I guess I just assumed that it was a kind of a commercial thing these days. But it's pretty much all volunteer. So wow. So, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. We don't do ads or anything like that, and it's all all focused on just community building. Nice. Um, you want to talk a little bit about your background in the web community, just some of the things that you've done and where you've been. You, you kind of gave me a thumbnail sketch beforehand, and yeah, yeah. and I think it'd be interesting for people to hear. Yeah. So, gosh, I I. Taught myself how to how to do the web um, back around about ninety five or ninety six. I still uh -huh. remember the first book I got. It was uh, creating and enhancing Netscape web pages, uh -huh. um, and so I, I kind of taught myself how to do HTML and stuff back then. And of course, it was heavily presentational and and crazy, lots of font elements and right. stuff like that, uh, and and tables for layout and such. Um, and then. Yeah, it's, I, my first job on the web, um, where people were actually handing over cash to me to do web stuff, was I was the content management system for the Bradenton Herald in Bradenton, Florida. Um, okay. And so, and this was 99, um, XML was the future. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the, the, the Jelly IMAX had just come out. But uh, yeah, I'd go into work at 11 o'clock at night and I'd take articles out of the Quark documents and I'd put them into Dreamweaver templates and fetch them up to the website. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I had all editorial control over what went up on the website because we didn't put every article up or anything like that. There was no, no actual content management system. It was pretty much just me. And I'd work from like 11 at night until about 6 or 7 in the morning oh, uh, wow. producing the, the newspaper uh, for the web, which was kind of nuts. But yeah, then I uh, relocated from Florida to Connecticut, worked for a bunch of companies like Deloitte & Touche and Gartner mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Um, 
working with them and caught the web standards bug around 2000, um, got really into CSS and uh, became involved with the web standards project with the World, or World Organization of Webmasters. I've done some work with the W3C and stuff mm -hmm. over, the, over the years and yeah, it's, it's been kind of a wild ride and I've, I've taught myself a ton and done, done just about everything I could possibly think to do at this point, but I still love it. It's a lot of fun. Awesome. Now, when most people think about web standards, it's funny. Uh, I, I'll talk to people about web standards, and they're like, eh, unless there's something in the standard they don't like. Right. So uh, I'm, I'm a little curious. How does the sausage get made there? Well, I mean, it depends on the organization. Right. Um, and I would say it also depends a lot on what the spec is, where it originates. Um, there's a lot of different ways that mm -hmm. things come into being. Um, it's kind of interesting to look back at sort of how HTML developed. Like, there are emails where Mark Anderson basically said, I want to make the image element. And uh, other people who were in kind of the, the early W3C were like, no, 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 image element doesn't make sense. We need to have this generic object element. And so there's argument back and forth. But then Mark was like, no, I'm just going to ship it in NCSA <laughs> Mosaic. And, you know, now <laughs> we have the image element. Um, and that's the way a lot of it was kind of in the early days. Right. And, um, you know, when, when standardization actually started happening, when we got kind of a unified DOM and mm -hmm. every, we stopped having like specific style sheets for every browser out right. there and specific JavaScript files for every browser out there. Um, I have banged my head against that particular wall, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, people don't know how good they have it nowadays. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, every, everything started to, to kind of converge and, and companies began working together better at, at the W3C, right. although there have been certainly meetings that I've been in where people have jumped over the table at each other. Um, oh, really? <laughs> Literally? <laughs> yes. Oh, wow. Um, it's, it's funny. There's some characters on, in the W3C organizations. But... Um, but every every everything is a little bit different. So so now like you have some specs that emerge out of companies that are trying to scratch their own itches. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I would, I would say animations and transitions kind of coming out of Apple. That was something right. that was very much they were trying to do that for their marketing stuff and mm -hmm. for building things like Keynote Online and, right. and things like that. Um, so that's where that originated, and then that became you know you know it was kind of thrown over, and then there was some some debate and some shifting. Similar things have happened with Grid. Grid came out of Microsoft years mm -hmm. and years ago. Um, it wasn't right for the for what we were trying to do, so that got discussed, and then uh, right. eventually became the spec that it is now, and now has uh, implementation across the board. Other things like uh, responsive images came out of a community group, so that was something where a bunch of web developers said, "Hey, this is a problem we need to solve," and we got together and started working on potential solutions. Initially, there was the picture element, which was kind of borrowed a lot from video and audio elements, mm -hmm. and eventually we ended up with source set and sizes as well right. as alternate approaches. And so that kind of had, I don't know, kind of like a grassroots building mm -hmm. into becoming a spec. And so, yeah, there are some things that originated at the W3C, some originated at the browser or implementer level, and some impl uh, some come up uh, from authors. And in fact, today, um, the Frontiers organization, uh, which is a group of web designers and developers in the Netherlands, they just announced that at their next meeting, they're going to be voting on whether they become a W3C member advocating just for web designers and developers. And Rachel mm -hmm. Andrew would actually be their first like appointee to the W3C to act on web designers and developers' behalf. And that oh, would be the first time that we would actually have like a bought seat at the table because in, in many cases, it's it's been you're an invited expert to a mm -hmm. particular committee uh, as opposed to being a, an actual member of the, the W3C that has a vote and stuff like that. Oh, interesting. 
so, be interesting to follow. Yeah, yeah. I'm hopeful that the uh, the vote will be in favor of, and, and we'll be able to get some uh, some folks on on the W3C advocating for for web designers and developers. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be nice. It would be, be nice. nice. So uh, we we set up this uh, interview to talk about PWAs. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely interesting to kind of get some of this background. Uh, where did PWAs come from? So PWAs, well, so the, the over ide- overall idea of a progressive web app is kind of an amalgamation of a lot of mm-hmm. features of modern web design, basically. Like right. modern web design best practices, like being... Um, sort of network agnostic and and having a richer app-like experience, being responsive, mm-hmm. being secure, those sorts of things. Right. There, there was that kind of initial laundry list that Alex Russell put together as, as things that he and Francis Berryman saw as characteristics of this new breed of, of website, effectively. Right. And that's what they, they coined progressive web apps as kind of a marketing term. Mm-hmm. One of the underpinnings of, of that is the service worker spec, which came out mm-hmm. of uh, Google. And so they've obviously been big proponents of progressive web apps. Right. And, and to the point that a lot of people began to think that PWAs were just a Google thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, they just, because they came up with service worker and, and did some right. of the initial implementation stuff, they were the first to market with this idea and with the installability portion in Android. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you've got Firefox can install PWAs on Android. Samsung can install PWAs on Android, Opera can, Chrome, uh, in, in Windows we have uh, desktop PWAs, Chrome can install them on Windows and Mac OS, hmm. Firefox I think is working on installation for uh, desktop as well. Now um, when you say install, mm-hmm. what, what do you mean by that? So the Chrome implementation I, I feel like is a little weird right now, but I think it's probably going to evolve over time. Like right now it's it sort of becomes... I don't know really how to describe it other than like an orphaned app. Like it, it exists as like when you launch it, mm-hmm. it actually exists in the window list in Chrome, but it exists as its own app icon. And okay. like if you're in that, like the Twitter PWA, mm-hmm. if you've got that installed, it sits on its own. You can launch it on its own, all of that okay. sort of stuff. But it's kind of like the old Chrome apps, if you right. remember those yep. uh, from back in the day. Whereas in Windows, you can actually install them from the Microsoft Store and it's like fully its own app and yes. has its own edge Okay. Know, instance and all of that sort of stuff. So it's a little bit different. But in the case of Chrome, you don't need to go through the, mm-hmm. you know, go through an app store or anything like that. Um, Edge is working on install from browser as well. Right. Um, I don't have an ETA on that. But, um, you know, there's there's sort of multiple ways to, to get to PWA installation and, and having it live as an app um, within within your operating system. Gotcha. So you still have to be able to connect to the web server and load everything up? At least initially. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the the one of the huge benefits is uh, file size. So if you look at looked at the UWP app that Twitter had, I don't remember the exact number, but it was somewhere around like 170 megs mm-hmm. to, to download from the store. The Twitter PWA is like 167K right. <laughs> to, to download like on disk, which is a huge, oh, huge yeah. improvement, especially on, on lower end devices that mm-hmm. don't have as much storage and stuff like that. So it's a much better experience overall, much less costly experience. Right. I think there's a huge opportunity in sort of like line of business apps and like internal apps that companies have to right. make those PWAs because then those, like, I don't know about you, but in my role in Microsoft, there are so many things that I, I have to touch just on a rare occasion, like time and absence reporting or uh-huh. like booking a shuttle or, you know, whatever whatever it is that are kind of like... It would be great if those were apps that were pre-installed with my right. my image of my Windows laptop, right? Mm-hmm. 
And so that, that create, PWAs create that opportunity where you can take this web thing, you can add a few things to it, you add your, right. add your web app manifest and your service worker, and now all of a sudden you have something that's installable mm -hmm. and can basically be, be ported around and, and is super light on disk, but gives you direct access to things that you need with you know, intermediate frequency as right. opposed to you know, needing them every day and without having to download something mm -hmm. huge, like some big company portal or something like right. that, right? So, so what makes something then a progressive web app as opposed to just a regular website? I mean, I think the distinction is it's largely in sort of the, the marketing mm -hmm. space. Um, the, the definition that a lot of us have kind of settled on as kind of the minimum viable PWA is running on HTTPS, having a web app manifest that describes all of the meta information about your site and, mm -hmm. and how it should render and all that sort of stuff, and then having a service worker that at least does some basic offline okay. uh, caching. And that would be considered a, a progressive web app. And that's, you know, in terms of what, what we're looking at and what we're considering PWAs in the, the Microsoft sense, mm -hmm. that's, that's sort of the definition that we've agreed on. That was what Alex Russell put forward. A couple other folks have, have basically said, yeah, that, that seems like a good general agreement for what, what a baseline PWA is. And then there's obviously opportunities to go further to do mm -hmm. things like push notifications if it makes sense, to do synchronization if it makes sense, to do, right. you know, in our case, integration with OS APIs and stuff like that mm -hmm. via WinRT, if that makes sense, those sorts of things. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've talked to a lot of different people. We have an Angular podcast, and mm -hmm. that was a big thing for a long time, you know, because that comes out of Google as well. Yep. You know, talking about PWAs with Angular. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, nobody really had a great definition for it. So I, I like having a concise definition. Hey, you know, it, it has these basic features. And, and that's testable, know. too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Testability yep. is a big thing. Yeah. So um, what are the advantages of having a PWA, and then and then I like to just dive into some of the technical details. Sure. But I, I'm aware that some of our listeners are fairly new, mm -hmm. and so I kind of want to start with the basics, and then we'll move along. Sure. Um, so I mean, in terms of advantages, the the really big one is the ability to control basically how you react to the network, mm -hmm. and because the you know one of the things that I think web development is challenging in more so than other areas of development, certainly than um, kind of traditional software development is a lack of control over your execution environment and, and how right. your code gets to your users. Mm -hmm. um, because the reality is like, we can control it up until the point that we respond to your request. Right. And then we're at the mercy of the network provider, we're at the mercy of your device, your browser choice, your plugins, yep. any special needs you have, like all, all of those sorts of things, like our, our control goes completely out the window at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so where PWAs really shine is the, the service worker can effectively be your own personal man in the middle. Um, so you can control all network requests. That means that you can, if, if the network isn't available, you can respond with an offline page. Um, right. Or you can do things like every network request that's made, make a cached copy of that. Mm -hmm. And if for some reason the network goes down the next time that page is requested, you can respond from the cache and even let somebody know, hey, this is a stale copy, you know, we'll, we'll refresh it as soon as you have network connectivity again. Mm -hmm. You have also the ability, like I was doing a, a Q&A last week and, and somebody asked what the, uh, what my favorite um, sort of service worker, like creative service worker recipes were. Dean Hume actually had two of them. The first of which was being able to detect if a browser supports WebP. And if you have WebP versions of all of your images, you can basically take requests for JPEGs and respond with a WebP. 
Oh, interesting. So you just you switch up which file you're asking mm -hmm. for because you have con you have control. You're, right. you're the man in the middle, right? The other one he did was uh, detecting network uh, network speed, and so if if you were detected to be on two G, he would replace all image requests with a response that was an empty gray SVG box. Huh. That was already stored in the cache. You know, you you ended up with kind of a lo-fi experience, and obviously you can you know have some sort of notification that the reason these images aren't right. loading is because I'm trying to conserve your bandwidth and, mm -hmm. and get you the content quicker. But those are are some really creative things that you can start to do with Service Worker once you tuck tuck into it. And and yeah, so so the performance benefits there are pretty fantastic. You can you can get render speeds down really really low um, because you don't have to hit the network at all, um, mm -hmm. or you can choose to. Um, you like can one, prioritize things. Yeah, basically, you can you can figure out what you want to do. Obviously, you, you'd want to consider using it in combination with things like resource hints and other mm -hmm. other ways of telling the browser you know what servers you're going to be connecting to, what you're going to want. Right. But you can do things like preload a bunch of stuff when the the service worker is initially installed, so mm -hmm. that your cache is basically primed with you know your CSS and JavaScript right. that's get gets used everywhere. Uh, images that are always used in the header, that sort of thing, and then kind of. You could run from the cache first if if the cache has a response, and then you could pull pull from the network if the network's available to get a, a new copy for mm -hmm. next time. Or you could always go to the network first and then cache it offline. And you right. know, there's there's so many different patterns for what you can do in terms of that that just the the performance impact is tremendous. Mm -hmm. And so you can really get to second loads being almost instantaneous for for browsers that support Service Worker, which is pretty much all modern browsers now. So. The, is the service worker kind of the star of the show for PWAs then? In a lot of ways, yeah. Because, I mean, there's only so exciting that a, a JSON file of meta information about your site <laughs> can get. Yeah. So, I mean, the Web App Manifest is interesting. I think it's it's sort of... I'm, I'm hopeful that in the future it will become even more interesting. But right now, you know, it's a lot of information about what you want your app's name to be, what you want the icons mm -hmm. to be, the start pages, how much right. UI you want to show, that sort of thing, which is great. There's additions for including things like screenshots and mm -hmm. IARC rating and uh, categorizations, which is helpful for a store context. Mm -hmm. Once we see more folks. IARC. IARC. It's, it's like uh, the parental rating. Okay. Um, and so we were looking at the, at those in terms of our store and wanting mm -hmm. to allow developers to basically say, you know, I want this to be categorized in these ways. Right. So that was a proposal that Microsoft made and, and landed both that and the IARC rating. And, you know, there, another one that's in development is like share two. So being able to basically identify your, your PWA as a share two target. So for, for the share term in Windows oh, or gotcha. for, yeah. you know, share in Android or, or what have you, that your, mm -hmm. your PWA, even though it's a web app, it could actually respond to those requests too. Right. It's pretty bare bones right now. It's nowhere near as as um, full featured as like the WinRT API for Share Two. Mm -hmm. But I'm hopeful that might evolve over time as well. Right. It's it's still not. It's got some some basic implementation in Chrome, but nobody else, to my knowledge, has right. has implemented that yet. But you know, I, I think that Web App Manifest will get more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, but Service Worker is definitely the the star right now, just because there's so much that you can do with it. You can also completely shoot yourself in the foot with it. That's right. become more difficult as as time has gone on but there there was at one point i remember when i did my first service worker i had all of my javascript files being 
like super long lived expiry dates on the server. Uh-huh. And so the service worker was being cached and not being updated, even though I was pushing updates to the service worker. Oh, now, no. <laughs> now the browsers actually will look for a new service worker and, and check to see if, mm-hmm. if it matches the, the one that they, the one that they've got on hand already and update it. But, uh, but yeah, there was a time when we could completely like hose our, <laughs> hose our site by having a bad stale service worker sitting around. Right. right. Yeah. So uh, one thing that I'm wondering is if the service worker sort of intermediates the you know the the pa- between the the browser and I guess the page the, the operating internet. system yeah. yeah and the and the opera and the internet would it make sense then to essentially have your service per- worker load and then have it load everything else or I don't know that that would necessarily make sense. I mean, that... Because we have these big build systems, right? We have Webpack now, and it kind of yeah. squishes everything together. And I mean, it, there are probably some people that would consider doing something similar to that, but I generally, especially being being such a proponent of progressive enhancement and, and stuff like that, I'm I'm not a really big fan of like the app shell model where you, you load the header footer and then suck in everything else right. via, via Ajax or fetch requests or whatever. I find that that method of building very fragile because mm-hmm. um, if anything goes wrong, nothing loads. Yep. <laughs> you got um, nothing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I remember back to um, Gawker Media, gosh, a number of years ago, they launched their their redesign and they had built this huge JavaScript framework for all of their platforms, which, mm-hmm. I mean, they were all blogs. Let's call, call a spade a spade. It was, all, right. it was all blogs or news stuff. Mm-hmm. It was content, right? It wasn't some rich application, but they built it on top of this JavaScript framework and everything was being sucked in via Ajax. And when they flipped the switch to turn it on for all those sites, there was a, um, a bug in the JavaScript code. And so no co- nothing loaded on any oh, no. page. Like you got like life hacker and like the frame or, or whatever, oh, whatever it was, and then like nothing else inside of it. Oops. Um, yeah. So um, not a huge fan of that, okay. that approach because so, I, I, find, I find that sort of thing frustrating. Like if mm-hmm. from a user perspective, even if everything works well, but like your boot up time for your, your JavaScript app is going to take a bit, especially right. on a slower device. And so all the time you're waiting for that, that JavaScript app to boot up is time that somebody can't interact with your right. site and actually do what they want to do. And, and so I'm, I would rather push a fully baked page mm-hmm. and then, you know, enhance pieces of it uh, to create a better experience or enhance the whole thing if necessary. But I'd like to get them to being able to do something as quickly as possible. Yeah, we, we've been seeing a lot of that with, uh, of course, it came out of server rendered, mm-hmm. you know, framework setups, you know, yeah, yeah. so you have uh, Angular Universal or... Fastboot for Ember. Yeah. There's a bunch of them. Yeah. And so essentially, yeah, it loads a fully baked page and then it loads everything on top of it and then captures all the events that came in and yeah which is a lot of overhead for most use cases i think yeah no, no that's over engineered we yeah. we tend to do that a lot we do yeah we we like our toys mm-hmm. but i am wondering then what is kind of the best practice or or i guess it depends on the app right and how much you need so so how do you start deciding okay i'm going to pull a service worker in and have it help with some of this and then maybe move on to some of these other more complicated options that we have so i think that um, so the the folks at cloud4 actually have a really good post called progressing our progressive web app or, or something uh-huh. something to that effect where they actually talk about their their evolution of moving their site to being a pwa and then how they evolved their service worker over time i highly right. recommend that folks uh, read through that that because the neat thing about this is that service workers 
web app manifest. This is all, it's all progressive enhancement mm -hmm. automatically. Like if you add a service worker to your site, it is not going to preclude anybody who doesn't have service worker support from being able to use your site. Right. It's an add-on, right? It's mm -hmm. just going to make the experience better if somebody can use that. And in a similar way, you can continue to evolve your approach to service worker where, let's say, your first pass, all you want to do is register your service worker and respond with an offline page if mm -hmm. uh, a certain request isn't made. That could be your first pass. Right. Or maybe maybe you've got that as your as your first pass. Your second pass becomes that plus pre-caching all of your um, critical CSS and JavaScript right. assets right, and your logo. Mm -hmm. And then your next step you determine for a particular section of the site, it makes sense to, like documentation, for instance, to go to cache first and, and see if you have a cache hit first and respond with mm -hmm. the cache. And then if not, go out to the network right. and cache the response. So you do that for that section. And then for another section that's a little bit more dynamic, you take a different approach. Mm -hmm. And so you you add a specific caching thing for that. And so, and so your your service worker grows over time. Right. Like each each thing can kind of be... be bit off <laughs> one, mm -hmm. at a, one at a time as opposed to trying to, to make the leap in. I, I feel like, you know, as, as smart as the folks behind Workbox are, the idea, I don't know if you're familiar with Workbox or not, no. but it's basically a framework for building service workers. Okay. Which feels like overkill to me. I mean, I know that service worker and like fetch and cache, these are all very uh -huh. low, low level APIs and people love abstraction. Right. But service workers not so complex that you need to abstract away basic caching right. stuff and, and things like that. I feel like that might be a little bit overkill. And I think mm -hmm. it's it's helpful to know how things work under the hood right. in case things go wrong, which, you know, for your first couple service worker passes, you'll probably make some mistakes. Right. But it's, you know, in, in the end, you'll have something that's a much more performant experience, a much right. better user experience overall for your customers. So That makes sense. So you so in order to be a PWA, you don't need the, the push notifications and all the yeah. other things. I don't think listed. anyone's ever going to want a push notification from my blog. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I took the first edition of Adaptive Web Design, which is my, my book on progressive enhancement. And I had done the coding for the original EPUB mm -hmm. by hand as well. And um, so I took all the content of that, I put it up on the web, and then I added a service worker and a web app manifest, and my book is a PWA. And it's static HTML, it's probably right. never going to change, right? There might be some errata that I'll add mm -hmm. or something like that. Um, but if, you're just, if you just want to read the book, when you go to read the book, it, it loads everything so you can read the entire book offline, you can add it to your homepage, all that sort oh, of nice. stuff. So. so what are all of the other options? Because it sounds like there's a... If, if I remember, there was a list of like eight things that you could have on a PWA that... In in terms of like features that you can add yeah. to it? I mean, it, it, none of them are... I mean, a, apart from push notifications, which do rely on service worker because, right. because that's a network thing, and the periodic sync, which is like a background synchronization mm -hmm. piece that relies on service worker. And then there's like a one-off sync as well. But apart from that, all of it's just kind of standard JavaScript APIs that you could use in the context of a PWA or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them are going to make an app feel more appy, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> so like WebAuthn, for instance, is a relatively new um, JavaScript standard that allows integration with on OS biometrics. So mm -hmm. Windows Hello via JavaScript, right? Right. And, and, and 
same thing on Android and, and other stuff right. like that. And and so that's that's or thumb gaining print support. reader exactly. Yeah, that's that's gaining support. And so you could integrate that into your into your website. It doesn't matter if it's a PWA or not. Right. But you know, it'll make your PWA feel more appy. Right. You know, if if that's something that you want to do. But yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of up to you what features make sense for you. And I think that is going to vary based on the project that, mm-hmm. that you're working on. Um, I did a piece for a list apart that was called, yes, that website should be a PWA. Mm-hmm. Um, that basically details for a bunch of different categories of website type where the benefits uh, are, are going to be for you okay. most likely. So, um, you know, if you're an informational site, the caching is probably going to be your, mm-hmm. your biggest thing. Right. You know, if you're a store, then there's going to be the caching, yes, for performance. That's right. Performance is going to be a universal help, yes. right? But then there's going to be things like push notifications. If somebody's done an order, being able to, to send them updates about that order, mm-hmm. when it's shipped, what the tracking right. number is, all that sort of stuff. New version, um, whatever. Yeah, yeah, those sorts of things become really useful. As you, you know, if you're a news site, push notifications could be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you want to make sure that you're not doing... Let's say if you're you're a very frequent publisher, you don't want to send push notifications for every right. <laughs> everything that you publish. <laughs> it would be like getting notifications for every tweet in your timeline, right? Uh, <laughs> but you might want to do daily or weekly roll-ups, right. and you could ask the user what they would prefer to get, and then they could get something that kind of rolls up the top stories or, or right. have you for that day. So a lot of it's about being, I think, honestly, exercising care with the sort of the, the capabilities that a user is allowing you, like the mm-hmm. the... The stuff a, a user is allowing you to do on their computer, like being right. being cognizant of that and being aware that this is a person you're dealing with, which I don't think we do enough of. There are so many sites that I go to and mm-hmm. like first time I've ever been to the site and they're immediately like, hey, give me your location. Hey, can I send you push notifications? Hey, can I do this? I'm like, no, no, none of that stuff. Yeah. You get none of it. And uh, so I think, you know, we, we need to seem a little less needy. We need to mm-hmm. give people context for when things are important. and. Right how we intend to use them and to mm-hmm. give users control over how we use them. I think Twitter does a really right. good job of allowing you to to customize how your notifications come in, what you get notified about, all of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And uh, and yeah, but a lot of that stuff could be done with any any sort of site. And if you're like a big enterprise site, you may have multiple PWAs within a single domain. Um, and that's kind of a neat thing too that you yep. can, you know, based on you know the subdirectory that you're in, you can have different PWAs in, in different spots and they do diff- they have different service workers that do different things and oh, that's interesting. act in different scopes and stuff. So you mean you mentioned subdirectories, but you, could you also do it for different parts of the page or things like um, that? I no, you'd need to be in it's so it's it's different scopes. Like your okay. your service worker has a, a particular scope that it works in. So if you want it to work for your entire site, it needs to exist in the root folder. Right. Where whereas if you stored it in your JavaScript folder, it would only be able to operate on the JavaScript folder. You can have multiple service workers that are operating on a given page, I gotcha. but they come from different scopes. Okay. So if you had one for, for the root of your site, right. and then you had one for a particular subdirectory, you may have right. those two service workers operating both on the same mm-hmm. um, page that's within that subdirectory. Gotcha. So for example, the application that I've been working on lately is uh, basically a podcast production site. So... Mm-hmm. I could have one for the root site and then one for podcasters and then one for even podcasts or episodes mm-hmm. or hosts or whatever. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. You could do a bunch of bunch of independent service workers and mm-hmm. they basically spawn their own their their own worker thread. So Right. And then they just do whatever is needed in that area. Yeah. Obviously there's a bit more that you need to think about in terms of how they interact with one another. Right. But um but yeah. 
Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, I can also see, and this is this is a lot of times why we create hierarchies and things like that within our code is because this is a more general concern and this is a more specialized concern. Yep. Yeah, and you could do some messaging between them as well, mm -hmm. uh, doing post message and stuff. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So just like any worker. Yep. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So is there an overall good place for people to become a little more informed about PWAs? Sure. I mean, there, there are a bunch of great resources out there. Um, we certainly have some docs on, on the Windows developer site. The, uh, the MDN docs, the Mozilla Developer uh -huh. Network docs, are, are pretty fantastic. Google has some great uh, documentation as well. If folks are looking for great examples of PWA successes, mm -hmm. the PWA stats website and Twitter account uh, are highly recommended. Those are from the um, the folks at Cloud4 as well, and they basically anytime some some new stat comes out from a company of what what successes they've had with PWA, they end up on the uh, the PWA stats site. Oh, cool! And uh, so that's very very useful for getting ammunition for why you want to do mm -hmm. a, a PWA, convincing your boss. Yep. So should every website be a PWA? I think in some in some capacity, yes. I, I think we need to be, as as with any JavaScript, we need to be cognizant of how we're using it. We don't right. want to, like, if you are a photographer, you don't want to cache all of the photos on your site on somebody's hard drive, right? right. Like, you don't want to automatically fill all of that stuff in. We need to be good citizens mm -hmm. and good stewards of uh, of our, our stuff that's operating in people's hard drives. But yeah, I think every site out there could benefit from being a PWA in one way or another, if only for performance and offline handling. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't think anyone's going to install my blog. I don't ever plan on uh, adding push notifications to it. There's no login to it because it's a Jekyll site. Mm -hmm. It's all static, right? Somebody um, should do that anyway. Yeah. So you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do web authentication or anything like that because right. it just doesn't make any sense. But you know, there it, it benefits from from being a PWA in terms of performance. You know, I I do have some stuff that's going on. Like I I use uh, web mentions from uh, webmention.io, mm -hmm. um, so I have some JavaScript pulling that's going on. I also do some offline caching of that into right. my Jekyll templates and stuff to speed up performance. But even something like a blog can can certainly benefit from from being a PWA, a book site, a, a you know, brochureware, a hotel site, like all of those could, could benefit from being a, a PWA. Heck, hotel Wi-Fi landing page <laughs> like, could really benefit from being a PWA. Really? Because um, Lord knows those performance uh, performance is horrible yeah. in those instances. So, yeah. so true. Yep. So are there new things that are getting added to the list of things that go into a PWA or new features that people should be looking at coming down the pike? So one of the features that, that is 
relatively new to service worker as the background sync. That's that's still kind of in in process. We haven't implemented it yet in Edge. Um, I believe a, an earlier version of it does exist in Chromium. I'm not sure how far along it is. I haven't haven't really been tracking mm-hmm. that one that that closely. I'm sure there are probably some other developments as well that I'm I'm not thinking of right now. But I know I've got some ideas that that I'm gonna start to push on uh, internally and then hopefully pitch over to folks at the W3C and such for improvements to the web app manifest and just additional things that would bring some some of our stuff that's been proprietary traditionally mm-hmm. in, into a standard space so that other people can take advantage of it too. Like I think it makes a lot of sense yeah. to have dark mode. Like we, we have dark mode. Uh, Mac OS has dark mode in Mojave, right? Yep. So why not have a media query that actually de- detects that and oh, that allows you nice. to, to yeah. respond? Um, I mean, that's not PWA. It's like not. It's not you know specific to service worker, but it's something that that would be a nice to have. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, and I think there's some stuff that start to to further blur that line between what is native and what is web, which I think is a good thing. No, that makes sense. I mean, to the extent that yeah. It could detect a setting in your machine or, I mean, even just give people the option on the web page. Yeah. And then it, the service worker goes and says, okay, load the dark dark mode CSS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it, it would be nice to honestly see, like we have high contrast mode in Windows mm-hmm. that we've had for years and we have media queries for that. It would be right. nice to see some of that standardized across the board too. Yeah. Um, instead of just being proprietary stuff. Makes sense. Um, how does this play into things like Electron, which runs in Chromium or um, Cordova or even, you know, within iOS or Android, sometimes they just have a little web view in there. Do those need to be PWAs or? So, again, I think it depends on the product that you're trying to build. Right. Um, I've had a lot of discussions with the folks at Slack about PWA versus mm-hmm. Electron and for them, they want total control over the execution environment, right? right? And so Electron gives you that because mm-hmm. you know the exact version of Chromium that you're yep. shipping. And so if your desire is to ship the exact same experience in every instance, then Electron can make a lot of sense. Now you're, you're going to pay a premium and your customers are going to pay a premium for that because they have to download the entire app. The entire yes. app. Um, so they have to download you know, effectively the, the Chromium browser for each Electron app mm-hmm. that's out there and they yep. all exist independently and you know, run at their own security speed and all that sort of stuff in terms of updating and, and that sort of stuff. Yep. So you become ultimately responsible for all of that. Mm-hmm. If you're willing, if you're aware of that and you're willing to shoulder that responsibility, then by all means, go right. go the Electron route if your project actually requires that sort mm-hmm. of level of control. But for most instances, like if you can get away with, like if it runs on the web and it runs well on the web and you can add a service worker and stuff like that and have it be able to be installed and have it be able to run offline, Electron's probably overkill for you, right? You, right. Don't, you don't need that extra overhead and you could run just fine as a PWA. I think we'll start to see, we'll start to see PWAs become that that web wrapper thing in app stores probably mm-hmm. because people do in in many instances for marketing reasons want to have a presence in an app yes. store um, and there's something to be said for that but they'll effectively be just you know what we have and what we've what we've had mm-hmm. as web view apps in in Android and, and iOS what we have as what is effectively a web view app for PWAs now with like Twitter Lite and stuff like that existing right. in the, the Microsoft store where it's the the WWA host is a wrapper 
which is effectively its own instance of of edge running um, mm -hmm. that's that's isolated and unique to your your PWA. But you don't have to carry along all the additional code to run that, right? right? Which is it means it ends up being a lot lighter. So. I think we'll start to see a lot of uh, a lot of folks move to that, but I don't see Electron really going away. I think there will be a lot of reasons to to keep those sorts mm -hmm. of tools around. So I, I think there will be a there will be a, a divide between those two things. Right. But I feel like PWA gets them closer mm -hmm. together because now all of a sudden you do have more control over the cache and over the network requests and stuff like that right. that you might have wanted from Electron. But mm -hmm. now you get them in both places, right? And right. and to me, the the real benefit of PWA is that if you're a company that that invests in the development of software, mm -hmm. and you are investing in, let's say, an iOS app, an Android app, and a web version of something, and it's all basically providing the same experience, you can double down on your investment in the web and still reach iOS and Android. Right. Right, without having to have a dedicated team for each of, of those products. If you're not seeing any huge benefits to being native on, on any mm -hmm. platform, really, over being a, a web app in, in that platform, then it makes more sense to be a web app because it's cheaper to, to build, it's easier to hire for, skills are more affordable. Like there's, yeah. there's a lot of like cost benefits to being, uh, mm -hmm. being on the web. And it basically runs everywhere. Exactly, and you, can, you, you get a lot more bang for your buck. But if there's a reason you need to be closer to the metal, you need to have you know, a, a richer, faster, you know, native experience, then by all means make the investment in, in having those native right. applications too. But in a lot of cases, you know, I, I think the web will will basically overtake a certain um, certain portion of right. uh, what have traditionally been native apps. That makes sense. So uh, I, I guess the other angle on that is, so within an Electron app, does it make sense to do some of the PWA things? I think it absolutely does to make sense to have a service worker and, yeah. and that sort of stuff there too. Yeah. I, I figured that that was the answer, but I didn't want to just take it for granted. So Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, unless for some reason you need to to like lock into an old version of Chromium that doesn't support Service Worker, right. which I hope isn't the case because for security reasons. But uh, but yeah, I think it absolutely makes sense to do a combined approach, and and I think we'll start to see some companies that that ship web products that um, they then also ship in uh, Electron that they'll take advantage of those PWA things too. Yeah. So and in in their case, you know, as with a lot of things, you know, we've. We've thrown a lot, lot of JavaScript code at mm -hmm. uh, creating UX affordances and stuff like that, like validation for email fields mm -hmm. and URLs and stuff like that. When HTML5 came along and said, hey, here's an email field type and here's a URL right. field type, now all of a sudden we don't have to ship that code. Mm -hmm. I, I feel very much the same way about people who are doing Electron apps and doing caching themselves and pre-caching things right. and stuff like that. Like They can get that for free now with Service Worker and not have to... Right not have to maintain that <laughs> like yeah yep makes sense well uh if people want to find you online where are you at at aaron gustafson a-a-r-o-n-g-u-s-t-a-f-s-o-n um i'm also aaron-gustafson.com yeah those are probably the the two best places to find me awesome hey guys let me tell you about clubhouse i swear i've used every project management software there is out there and i hated project management software now i have clubhouse Overall, it's simple and straightforward to use, but it has enough of the integrations and power features you need to get the job done without getting confusing. 
This means that I can use it and the non-technical members of my team can figure out what they need from it. It also makes it easy for me to zoom out and see what's going on overall before zooming back in and specifying more work that needs to be done or picking the next task for me to tackle. They integrate with all the systems that you'd expect and have a REST API for, well, the REST. If you go to https clubhouse.io slash jsjabber, you can get two months free instead of the standard 14-day trial for any team size. Once again, that's https clubhouse.io slash jsjabber. All right, well, um, we're kind of running out of time. Uh, the last uh, segment of the show is picks. Mm-hmm. So do you have some things you want to shout out about on the show? Oh, gosh, let's see. So I uh, read a book called um, Homegoing, which is, uh, let's see if I can pronounce her name, Yagyasani, I think that's how you pronounce it, um, which is a, a fantastic book that actually, um, it, it's slavery told through the, the perspective of the people in Africa who's... Um, whose tribes were enslaved and how, and, and basically follows two lineages, one in Africa and one uh, that got shipped over to the States and mm-hmm. kind of how, how generationally they, they changed over time. And it, it was oh, interesting. incredibly horrifying and moving and beautifully written mm-hmm. and just had a tremendous impact on, on me. I highly recommend it if, if folks are looking for a really riveting read. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard <laughs> at some points um, to get through, but, but definitely worth reading. That one's pretty fantastic. Um, I'm also a big uh, fan of, don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Zaytun, uh, Z-E-I-T-O-U-N, uh, which was by David Eggers. And it's about uh, a man who stayed behind during Katrina. And it's, it's mm-hmm. like a fictionalized uh, biography sort of thing. Um, so it follows a, a real person and it's his experiences uh, staying behind during Katrina to take care of the houses that he rents out and mm-hmm. sort of the things that he runs into and and that sort of stuff that was really interesting. There, uh, Dave, David Eggers has done quite a few books sort of in that genre. What is mm-hmm. the what's another uh, fantastic one that follows a, a Somali uh, boy who escapes being enlisted into child army. Like I know I'm going, oh, wow. getting into really like deep <laughs> depressing stuff, but I find books like that fascinating and, and really eye opening. I liked, I like to, I don't know, expand the, the sphere of my experience. Right. And, and so I, I like to read that, read about things that I have no experience with in order to, you know, get, get at least some, some understanding of the complexity of the, the human experience. No, I, I completely understand. And I mean, even, you know, within development, you know, the opportunities that we have to talk to people who have a different experience from us, mm-hmm. you know, but yeah, in the broader sense of humanity, right? What, what kinds of things have people gone through? Absolutely. You know, the, the good and the bad mm-hmm. and, you know, just, yeah, really understanding people. It's, it's interesting too, because we see in certain, you know, political or religious or other aspects of life, you know, people just demonize other people. And one thing that I see in a lot of this is that 95% of the time, we all want mostly the same thing, you know, just to be happy and mm-hmm. live life and things take like that. Take care of our families, take yeah. care of ourselves, yeah. And so, you know, to, to see where people struggle and to see what we do to each other and then to understand that and have a conversation, a real conversation, even if it's painful, mm-hmm. about how we can make things better. Yeah. 
I, I think that's more powerful than yelling at each other because we don't like what somebody said on Twitter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think recognizing our shared humanity yeah. is a really important thing. To that end, I actually just went down to Portland for EffectConf, which unfortunately mm-hmm. this is the last last year of it. But it, it's a really interesting conference that is very intersectional in, in how it, it's kind of, it's, it's a, a dovetailing of marginalized communities. So um, people of color and people with disabilities, as well as uh, activism and tech. So it's kind of like mm-hmm. this, this weird blend. It was an extremely emotional two days. Um, and it was a lot of listening and it was a lot of like recognizing my privilege as a cis white male. Um, and, you know, just realizing how much we need to listen to each other, how, how, you know, we as software developers can often create scenarios that can be abused by bad actors. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the examples that was given in a, a talk by um, a, a woman from GitHub whose name is totally escaping me because I'm a bit fried from the, the flight last night. But uh, she was talking about how Venmo um, had no way to block somebody from being able to send you money. So this this woman had an abusive ex-boyfriend who would send her a dollar whenever he felt like it and just berate her in the, the oh, comment. Wow. Um, and so he was using Venmo to abuse mm-hmm. her. Um, and they finally cut that off. But there, there's a lot of times that, that things like that can happen. Even GitHub had uh, the way they used to do your ability to add somebody to a repository when you created it. So you could create something that was horribly offensive to everybody. And like I could add you to that. And oh, interesting. now all of a sudden you're party of this thing that you had no uh-huh. like involvement in or right. interest in or even knowledge of. Um, so they've changed their, their ways of, of doing that so that mm-hmm. you can't do that, that you actually have to accept to be added to a particular project or, right. or something. So I, you know, a lot of times we tend to think of, of the best, like the best case scenario, uh-huh. and we don't always think about how people um, can use our tools for wrong. Um, and so that was a really eye-opening yeah. uh, conference to see how that, that stuff can be done. Yeah, and I mean, to a certain degree, I think it's useful to think about, but I also give people a little bit of the benefit of the doubt on some of that stuff because, n- not the bad actors, but, mm-hmm. you know, on, th- there's, n- I don't know, I don't know if I was working for Venmo, if I would have ever considered that somebody would send nasty messages to somebody else, right? And so, you know, at the same time, I think there is a little bit of grace that we need to offer to people when they don't think of these things, as long as they're willing to... If they're willing to tackle it. And I think think the case that many people are trying to make now is that having, having a more diverse team building a product will potentially improve your ability to find those oversights ahead mm-hmm. of time. Um, because if you've got everybody who's, ha- who's you know, lived basically a, a very similar experience, yes. they have, you know, they all think that because they all agree that they, this is what they're doing, that like, ev- that's works yeah. for everybody. And when we design with only ourselves and people like us in mind, we exclude everybody else, right? Yeah, um, that's fair. So I think the, the more people that we can get involved early on that have, you know, different considerations, different perspectives, um, different backgrounds that Mm -hmm. helps us to create better products. And I think that's one of the things that's made me really happy about working at Microsoft is like our, our focus. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but our focus on creating a more diverse and inclusive work environment and trying to actually foster more diverse teams and Mm -hmm. creating space for people to, you know, live their true selves in, in a work environment Mm -hmm. and to, to participate in that. Um, I think is is great. I think our products will be better because of it. Um, 
So at least I'm hopeful yeah. that, that that will be the case. No, I, I definitely agree with that. The thing that's interesting there too, and again, it it comes back to talking about other people. And, and if you're okay with this, I'm just going to leave this all in the, the show, yeah. is that I find, and, and we're going to have to get out of here soon-ish, but uh, I find that a lot of times we focus on the parts of this that are easy to see, like uh, somebody's race or gender or things mm-hmm. like that. And a lot of times, you know, somebody can have a different racial background or gender background than me, but at the same time have a very similar experience growing up. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so their background is very similar. And so um, I just, it, it's interesting to talk about because sometimes these these things that we can see actually, you know, fall into somebody's background, you know, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. you know, their their gender, their race, whatever, does inform their background, and sometimes it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting, too, just to talk about, okay, how do we actually figure out which axes of somebody's background matters? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess I just caution people against taking the mental shortcut of somebody looks different, therefore their experience must be different. You know, go talk no. to them. No, absolutely. You know, go, go have the conversation. You know, what's hard for you? What is life like for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I look at, I'm, I'm a cis white male. I, when I was younger, I grew up in a fairly poor household, not mm-hmm. like ridiculously poor, but pretty poor. Yeah. And on the, on the flip side, I've got my, my son who's two. He's going to grow up in a much more uh, affluent right. space than I did, but he's black. Mm-hmm. And so he is going to grow up, you know, potentially being followed in stores when he goes and, and walks in on his own. He is mm-hmm. going to be immediately the one who's, you know, people are suspicious of and stuff like that. And so his, he is going to, even though financially and opportunity-wise, he is going to be so much further advanced than I am, mm-hmm. there are going to be societal things that are going to, you know, basically be working against him at the same time. And so, yeah, it's really, it's yeah. really interesting where all of these different things intersect. And I think, you know, there, there are other things like, you know, we, we've been talking about things that are visible, but in a lot mm-hmm. of cases, there are disabilities that are invisible. Yep. You know, PTSD, for mm-hmm. instance, is not something that's glaringly apparent to you right. that somebody has gone through. Um, and so, you know, how do we build an awareness of issues that people with PTSD struggle mm-hmm. with so that we can make sure that we don't create situations unintentionally? Because you know we're not intending to to you know cause anybody harm, right. um, but how do, how do we uh, how do we go about creating scenarios where where they don't uh, you know have mm-hmm. uh, ex- experience bad situations and and stuff like that that we don't exacerbate the the problems that they're having and I think a lot of it's just building an awareness is is listening and and trying yeah. to empathize trying to find our our connected our connectedness and our shared right. humanity and so that's you know that's kind of where where I'm at and where I'm putting a lot of my focus now and, mm-hmm. and I feel like, you know, it, it dovetails nicely with accessibility with in, in kind of a broad sense and, and that's kind of where the PWA stuff comes in for mm-hmm. me because it's about creating more opportunities for people to access stuff in broader contexts and you know, when, when we start to look towards the, the rest of the world, they don't always have the, the best network connectivity and right. they don't always have the most modern devices mm-hmm. and, and stuff like that, that that we in the wealthy Western world, you know, get. Right. And, and so the more that we can do to take into account their situations, the, the better we can make the web overall yep. because we're creating more opportunities for them to participate and for their voices to be heard and for us to learn more about them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so it's... Yep. cyclical thing keeps yep. feeding back on itself and yeah absolutely 
All right. Well, um, I don't think I have time to do my picks. Uh, I'll just shout one out real quick. So I just listened to a book on Audible called Armada, and it's by, oh, what's his name? Same guy that wrote Ready Player One, Ernest Klein. And fun book. Not not as deep as the ones that you pick, but but yeah, I, I've really enjoyed that. And uh, Audible is just a really terrific way, especially when I'm traveling, to mm-hmm. just kind of you know yeah. get some relaxation through the stress of going through the airport and all that garbage. Yep. So I anyway, agree. all right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Uh, thank you for coming. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. All right. It's well, been a good chat. Yeah. We'll uh, catch everybody next week. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.